We're going to start this morning in a unique way. I don't very often do this, and I won't very often do this, but it seems very fitting. As I was putting the message together this past week, I remembered this story, and I thought, I I need to share that with the church as we get moving into this sermon. But it's long, and I want to just go ahead and acknowledge that. It's long, but it's good. It's referred to as a modern-day fable. The author of it is a fantastic storyteller, and it really is well done. I hope you'll listen to this. It's called The Fish and the Falls. Once upon a distant time, when time was not and rivers had no names, there was a fish. Born in the cascading bubbles of a rocky mountain stream, this fish learned early the passion of play. He was at home in the water. He raced back and forth in the harbor made by a fallen log. He dared on occasion to cross the rapids by darting from rock to rock. Each morning he witnessed the sun lift the shadowy curtain of night. It was his daily invitation to dance in the clean waters. Then as the sun climbed higher, its warmth would lull him to slowness, giving him time to stare through the waters at the tall trees that waved and the furred visitors whose tongues would drink and then disappear. But if the day was his time to play, the night was his time to think. This young trout, not content to know so little, kept eyes open while others closed theirs. What is the source of this stream? Where does it go? Why is it here? Why am I here? He pondered the question that others never ask, and he listened at length for the answers. Then one night he heard the roar. The night was so bright that the moon saw herself in the stream. The fish, awake with his thoughts, recognized for the first time a noise he'd always heard. Who is the maker of this sound? Who is the giver of this noise? He had to know. He swam all night without stopping, nourished by his need to know. The roar grew louder, its thunder both frightened and compelled him. He swam until the stars turned pale and the gray pebbles regained their colors. When he could swim no more, weariness overcame curiosity and he stopped. He slept. The sun was warm on the trout's back. In his sleep, he dreamt he was playing again. Dashing between the rocks, daring the water to catch him, he dreamt he was at home. Then he awoke, remembering his pilgrimage. He heard the roar, it sounded near. He opened his eyes, and there it was, a wall of white foam, water tumbling, then falling, then flying, then crashing. It was like nothing he'd ever seen. I will climb it and see it. He swam to where the water crashed into the river. He attempted to swim upwards. He would ascend the falls by brute force, but the onrush of the water was too strong. Undaunted, he swam until he could no more. Then he slept. The next day, he attempted to jump to the top. He plunged downward, deep below the churning foam. He swam deep. He swam deep. He swam until the water was still and dark and the roar was distant. Then he turned upward. His fins fought from one side to the other, pushing and propelling the trout until he was swimming faster than he'd ever swum. He swam until the water was still and dark and the roar was distant. Then he turned upward. His fins fought from one side to the other, pushing and propelling the trout until he was swimming faster. He swam straight for the surface, higher and higher, faster and faster. He raced through the top of the water and soared high into the air. He soared so high he was sure he would land on the top of the waterfall, but he didn't. He barely rose above the foam. Then he fell. I'll try again. Down he swam, up he pushed, out he flew, and down he tumbled. He tried again and again and again, ever trying to reach the top of the wall, ever failing at his quest. Finally, night fell and the moon stood vigil over the weary young trout. He awoke with renewed strength and a new plan. 
He found a safe pool off to the side of the base of the waterfall. Through the still waters, he looked up. He would swim against the gentle trickle of the water as it poured over the rocks. Pleased with his wisdom, he set out. Doggedly, he pushed his body to do what it wasn't made to do. For an entire passing of the sun through the sky, he struggled. He pushed on, climbing, falling, climbing, falling, climbing, falling. At one point, when his muscles begged for relief, he actually reached a ledge from which he could look out over the water below. Swollen with his achievement, he leaned too far out and tumbled headfirst into the calm pool from which he began. Wearied from his failure, he slept. He dreamt of the roar. He dreamt of the glory of leaving the mountain stream and dwelling in the waterfall. But when he awoke, he was still at the bottom. When he awoke, the moon was still high. It discouraged him to realize that his dream was not reality. He wondered if it was worth it. He wondered if those who never sought to know were happier. He considered returning. The current would carry him home. I've lived with the roar all my life and never heard it. I could simply not hear it again. But how do you not hear the yearning of your heart? How do you turn away from discovery? How can you be satisfied with existence once you've lived with purpose? The fish wanted nothing more than to ascend the water, but he was out of choices. He didn't know what to do. He screamed at the waterfall, Why are you so harsh? Why are you so resistant? Why won't you help me? Don't you see? I can't do it on my own. I need you. Just then the roar of the water began to subside. The foaming slowed. The fish looked around. The water was growing still. Then he felt the current again. He felt the familiar push of the rushing water, only this time the push was from behind. The water gained momentum, slowly at first, then faster and faster, until the fish found himself being carried to the tall stone wall over which, the flo- which had flowed the water. The wall was bare and big. For the moment, he feared that he would be slammed into it, but just as he reached the rocks, a wave formed beneath him. The trout was lifted upwards. Up he went out of the water on the tip of a rising tongue. The wave elevated him up the wall. By now the forest was silent. The animals stood still as they witnessed majesty. The wind ceased its stirring. The moon tilted ever so slightly in an effort to not miss the miracle. All of nature watched as the fish rode the wave of grace. All of nature rejoiced when he reached the top. The stars raced through the blackness. The moon tilted backwards and rocked in sweet satisfaction. Bears danced, birds hugged, the wind whistled, and the leaves applauded. The fish was where he had longed to be. He was in the presence of the roar. What he couldn't do, the river had done. He knew immediately he would spend forever relishing the mystery. Here's my question for you. Have you ever longed for something so desperately that you believed that your life would not be complete without it? It's the kind of longing that a young man might feel when he sees a lady that he would like to spend time with, but all too often that fades. It's the same type of longing that a young lady might feel when she has been with a man that she would like to call her husband. That's not the kind of longing I'm talking about. A lot of men and some women might even walk into Cabela's with that type of longing. They, They go back to the gun counter and see all kinds of things and think, if I just had that... That would change my life, but that's not the kind of longing we're talking about. Happens on car lots all the time where you show up and think, if I was driving that, boy, my life would be different. People would see me differently. But that's a fleeting thing as well. It's not the kind of longing we're talking about. People go and 
see homes that are for sale and they think if I could just upgrade to this home, boy, our life would change completely. Everything would be beautiful and wonderful and exactly the way we want it to be. And they long for this new house that they would call a home, but it's not the kind of longing we're talking about. What I'm talking about is a soul longing deep inside of you. It's that place where you realize that there is separation between you and God. There is separation between you and the creator of the universe. And you long to have that closed up. That you might know Him and be with Him. That He might know you and there can be intimacy between the two of you. A soul longing like that changes everything. There are a lot of people that have experienced that. They really have. Everybody at some level has experienced that type of longing. It is hardwired into men and women from the time of birth. I can actually show you the point in history where that longing began to take hold of people. Go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Speaking of Adam, the Bible says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. From that point forward, every man, every woman ever created has had that type of a longing. For some people it is realized very quickly, very early on. For other people it's buried a little bit deeper and it takes a while for it to come out. But the longing is there. There is something missing in my life, something that I cannot make happen on my own, something that I need more than everything else. That is a relationship with God and that is a soul longing. It's deep inside of us. It really is. For those of you that have been Christians for a while, I want you to imagine what it was like or remember what it was like when that longing took hold of you. When you knew that you needed a relationship with God. When you knew that there were things that had to be addressed in your life and you couldn't address them. Only God could. Do you remember that longing? Do you remember that moment? If you do, then let me ask this. What word would you use to describe what happened when Jesus came into your life? What was the word that you would use to describe the moment right before that happened? How were you feeling? Some people would tell you there are no words to describe that. Others would tell you we don't have enough time here this morning to put all those words out. I would tell you that there's a biblical word that sums it up. Beautiful word. Here it is. Take a look at this. Hosanna. Typically, we hear it this time of year surrounding Easter, usually on Palm Sunday. We've just reversed the order a little bit as we look at four words of Easter that really can change our lives. But this word sounds very biblical, Hosanna. Do you know what it means? Here's the meaning. Save now. When you find it in your Bibles, typically there's a footnote connotation right next to it. It'll take you down to the bottom of the page and it'll tell you that that's what that word means. It means save now. Hosanna, save now. When we come to an understanding of that word, we can actually get to a place where we live what I would refer to as a Hosanna life. Now let me show you where it first makes an appearance in the Bible. We're going to go to the Old Testament, book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25. There are a number of people that have dedicated their life to studying the original languages of the Bible. 
a lot of those teachers would tell you that though the word itself is not used, the idea of Hosanna first appears right here in Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. The psalmist is sharing out of his soul longing, out of the depths of his heart. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Hosanna. That's the whole idea of it. But if you really want to understand what the psalmist is saying, you've got to look at the context of this. So go back to verse 1 with me. Psalmist writes, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. Now you can capture what's happening there. The psalmist has experienced something from God and he wants everybody else to know it. He knows that God's love endures forever. He's experienced it. He's lived it. So he says, let the house of Israel say it. Let the house of Aaron say it. Let everybody around us say it so that they understand God lives forever and his love endures forever. Man, that's a great message for people to want to share with their lives. Listen to how he got there. This is verse 5. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. I wonder if the writer of this particular psalm had the ability to take a look forward several thousand years to the year 2014. And if he did, they think, I want to write some words that will touch them the same way they've touched me. Probably not. What we find is that the Bible is as applicable today as it was when it was first written. The psalmist was dealing with three things that permeate our society all the time. He was in deep anguish. We might even refer to that as deep anxiety. He was wrestling with fear and he needed help. Those three things defined where he was at when he said, His love endures forever. Look at what God has done for me. God brought me out of this anxiety, this anguish. God brought me out of the fear. And God provided for me the help that I needed. Now, can you imagine somebody in our modern world saying the same thing? I wrestle with deep anxiety. I'm in anguish all the time. I have great fears that permeate every aspect of my life. And I need help. Probably you can. Hopefully you're able to look at yourself and say, I need help because I have this soul longing that I can't pull off without God. But let's take the second one of those things and just look at at how it's permeated our society. This idea of fear. The National Journal on Medicine has an article in it that says that in the post-World War II society, fear has taken hold like no one had ever seen before. In the last 60 to 70 years, people have been defined by fear, so much so that even child psychologists are having to deal with deep fears in children. They're having to deal with it in pre-adolescent kids. They're having to deal with it in adolescence. They're having to deal with it in adulthood. Fear is everywhere. They would say that all of that took hold right after the end of the Second World War. You can think about some different reasons that that might be true. We moved from the Industrial Revolution into the Technical Revolution and into the Age of Information. 
People have access to all kinds of different things. It leads to different fears in a lot of folks that, that people before them could have never imagined. Things like this. There are people that are afraid of everything from plastics to pesticides and everything in between. There are people that wrestle with fear over nuclear weapons and mobile phones. There are people that deal with biotechnology and how it might touch their life and the fears that are associated with that, all the way up to fears that are associated with global travel. They're not sure that they can even move, and it becomes a paralyzing fear. Well, the psalmist knew that, and he would say, Lord, save us. Save now. Grant us success over things like that. I love the way he continues on in his writing. This is found in verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, that's how you deal with fear. It really is. It is better with God than it is any place else. That's where I will hide. That's where I will find help. That's where I'll deal with anguish. That's where I'll deal with fear. All of those things are taken care of there. I will hide in the things of the Lord. And that gets him then to verse 25, where he can say, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Verse 26, though, this is great insight. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. Messianic prophecy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If I'm really going to have relationship, communion, fellowship with God, it's going to come through the one who comes from his house. It's going to come from Jesus Christ, his son. If I'm really going to find deliverance, that's going to come through His Son. If I'm really going to find hope and connection, that will come through God's Son. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's the Old Testament teaching of this idea of a Hosanna life. Save now. That's the Hosanna life in the Old Testament. Let me show it to you in the New Testament. For that, we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now those same language experts would tell you, many of them would, that there is a difference between the Old Testament Hosanna and the New Testament Hosanna. Their belief is that the New Testament Hosanna is simply a word of praise and worship, while the Old Testament Hosanna carries with it the save now idea. My question to them is, why does it have to be one or the other? Why can they not be linked? 
These people that were in Jerusalem watching Jesus descend from the Mount of Olives and come through the Lion's Gate into the city during this beautiful time, what we would refer to as the triumphal entry, had been waiting for decades, for centuries, year after year after year for a Savior to come. And when they saw Jesus, they saw the Savior. Wouldn't it make sense that in an act of worship, they would declare, save now. Jesus is coming, save now. It would make perfect sense, and I am no expert in the the languages, not at all, but it would make perfect sense to me that that's their declaration and that's their worship. Save now. We need you, God. We need you like we have never needed you before. This is the perfect timing. Save now. So they cry out, Hosanna. I don't believe there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament use of that word or the idea associated with it. Save now. Because my soul longs for that. My soul needs that. So they screamed it. They declared it in front of Jesus, behind Jesus. Didn't matter. They were saying, Hosanna, save now, out of the depths of their heart. The same idea shows up other places in the New Testament. Let me show you one of those. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Matthew now for this one. Matthew chapter 14. Starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now let's go back to the language experts. They would tell you that what Peter cried out literally were these words, Lord, save now. As if each one of them was their own sentence with a period at the end of it. Lord, period, save, period, now, period. Lord, save now. He was in trouble. He was sinking. And so he took the idea of Hosanna and he belted it out. Why he didn't use the word, I don't know. But he said, Lord, save now. You ever felt like Peter? He stepped out in faith and for the longest time you had your eyes on the Lord and everything was going good. Then you took your eyes off of him and you began to sink. What'd you say? It was probably some form of Lord, save now. After you realized that you couldn't get back to the top of the water on your own, it was probably Lord, save now. Just like Peter, I'm desperate. Lord, save now. Businessmen and women have used that expression. Maybe if you own your own business and things have been pretty tough at times and you don't know if you're going to make it, you would scream, Lord, save now. Husbands have looked at their marriage and seen it crumbling around them and they've tried everything they could possibly do to save it on their own. And when there was no more hope on their own ability, they would say, Lord, save now. Wives would look at their relationship with their husbands, see the same thing, it's crumbling, and I can't do anything to change it. Lord, save now. 
And the list just goes on and on and on. It even gets itself to a point where we recognize that for the longest time our eyes were focused on Jesus and we were winning the battle over sin. But when we took our eyes off of Jesus, we began to sink and the water was rising awfully quickly. There are a number of men in this church that gathered at 6.30 this morning to talk about that very thing. Men that were willing to say, we have some issues that we have to deal with under a title of the effects of sin on a man's life. They gathered to say, Lord, save now. When we get pulled back into sin, those are the only words that get us out. Lord, save now. Get me out of this. A Hosanna life is willing to use that word over and over and over again. Hosanna, save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now. I need you, God. That's what a Hosanna life is all about. A declaration of our need for God. And that's where the soul longing gets taken care of. But there is probably no place more evident than that than when we first come to an understanding of our sin. Let me take you to the book of Ephesians. Turn there with me if you would. While you're turning, I'll illustrate where we're headed. A couple of months ago, our kitchen sink got clogged. I don't mean that it had just a kind of slow drain going on. I mean, our kitchen sink got clogged. It was an epic clog. I have never in all of my life seen anything like this. Now, I was not the first one to discover it. My wife came to me and she said, hey, our kitchen sink's clogged. And I said, oh, can't be that bad. So we walked into the kitchen together and both sides of the sink, two sides sink, both sides of the sink had standing water in it. You know what I did at first? I denied that the clog was there, and I turned and went the other way. I was like, nah, it's not that bad. Tina came back to me, and she said, it isn't going to drain. The clog is still there. So I went back after my period of denial, and I looked at it and said, well, I've got to do something to try to change this, so this is what I did. I threw chemicals at it. I poured everything I could into the sink. By the way, there are warnings on some of those canisters that say, do not mix the chemicals. There's a reason for that. <laughs> so I poured everything in that I could. And it did nothing. Even the chemicals could do nothing. So I went back into a period of denial and I said, oh, it'll be fine. And Tina came back and said, it's not fine. People are still using the sink. Water's rising. We need help. So this was my idea. I went to the bathroom, got the plunger, brought it in, put it on the kitchen sink and went to work with it. A little trivia for you. There are warnings on some of those chemical bottles that say, do not use a plunger if you've used this. There's a reason for that. It builds up pressure. Kind of a bad deal. So I'm plunging for all I'm worth. Sink is not draining. There is nothing changing. I went down to the basement, found a bendable piece of metal. I thought, on my own power, I will shove that clog out of there. I crammed it down in the sink, and that piece of metal hit a brick wall in this clog. I was completely defeated. Completely defeated. There was only one option. I knew what it was. I was going to have to tear the sink apart. Didn't want to tear the sink apart. You have to tear the sink apart. So I got underneath it, had a pipe wrench with me, everything's up above me. I went to tearing it apart. Trivia for you. If your sink is clogged and there's a lot of standing water in it and you tear it apart from underneath, <laughs> water will find you. So it found me. I pull the joint off and I look in there and here's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. It was just terrible. Absolutely terrible. We dug it out, beat it out, got rid of the thing, threw it outside, cursed it for what it was, put the sink back together, filled it up, 
sink drained exactly the way it was supposed to. Now, here's why I tell you that story. There are a lot of people that are spiritually clogged. You have a spiritual clog in your life. You cannot deny it. Try it. It's still there. You cannot throw chemicals at it and make it go away. Though there are a lot of people that try that. They look at the issues of their life, this spiritual clog, and they think drugs and alcohol are going to be the answer. It doesn't work that way. You can't throw chemicals at it and make the clog go away. You cannot destroy it on your own power. It's impossible to do that. Plunge it, beat it, poke it, doesn't matter. The spiritual clog is still there. The only way you can deal with it is through drastic measures. You get in there and you tear the thing apart and you find out what's really needed. What you will find is that you need Jesus Christ. You're in Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look at this. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. There's the clog. It's a horribly disgusting looking thing. So much so that the Bible would teach that you were an object of the wrath of God. Book of Romans would say that because of your sin, what you deserve is death. That's the wrath of God. That's how bad the clog is. With the exception of those that have found Jesus Christ, everybody has it. It's there. It's strong. And it isn't moving. Drastic measures say that I'll tear it apart. When I tear that apart, I'll see what I need. And what you need is Jesus. Listen to this, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If you're a note taker and you're a bold note taker in your Bible, you may just want to write Drano right next to there. That's God's Drano. That's how he deals with the clog that exists in your life. And once it is freed up, once that clog is gone, once the sin has been dealt with and you have received the grace of God, if you go back to our modern day fable, once you have been lifted up by that river of grace and you are in the presence of the roar, you are standing there with God, here's what happens. The very Spirit of God flows freely through you. The Spirit of God flows freely through you. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit of God flows freely through you. A Hosanna life brings that about. Hosanna, Lord, save now. Change everything. Deal with this clog that your Spirit might flow through me. And God is always faithful. And He always provides that. And that's the way it works. The Spirit of the Lord flows through you. You might say to yourself, I've wanted that. I have. I've tried to find it and it, it just hasn't worked. How do I pull it off? Here's my answer to that. You allow the Lord to breathe on you. Let me show you an interesting miracle in the New Testament. This is found in John chapter 20. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. He is now out of the grave. Some of the disciples have seen him. They are reeling from that. 
there's rumor that he is alive. They don't know what to do with that rumor. So the disciples have locked themselves away in a room. The door is locked. It's closed up tight. They don't want anybody coming or going. This is what happens. Verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine what that was like? They had been brought out of an old way of life. They'd been given new purpose. They had experienced the roar. They'd gotten to the top. They were in the presence of the Creator. And now Jesus is gone and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They're trying to figure it out, but the only real answer seems to be to go back to their old way of life. If they collected taxes, they'd go back and be a tax collector. If they were fishermen, they would go back and fish again. If they were the sons of thunder, they'd just go back to doing what they were doing. They'd go back to their old way of life. Jesus didn't let that happen. Instead, he breathed on them. This is verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Has God ever breathed on you? If he has, the clog's gone. The Spirit of the Lord flows through you. Have you experienced it? It happens in salvation. When we come to Jesus Christ and we ask Him to be our Lord and Savior, at that moment, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. God breathes on us. And the Spirit of the Lord lives there. Hosanna is the key to it. Save now. Lord, save now. And God does. I want to invite you to stand with me. Worship team's going to make their way up here. As they're coming, I want to help you learn how to live a Hosanna life. Because this is one of those biblical words we all need and we should all use, but we don't. Partly because we don't practice it. We don't really know how to use it. So we're going to practice it this morning. And I'm going to help you do that. All you have to do is repeat after me. And we are going to learn how to live a Hosanna life. Here's the way it works. Again, just repeat after me. Hosanna. Let's try again. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save now. Hosanna.